Hello and welcome to the Astana International Financial Centre's Legal Tech Podcast with your host, Mark Beer. Today, it gives me great pleasure to be in conversation with Dr. Mimi Zhao of Oxford University's Deep Tech Dispute Resolution Lab and a fellow of the University of Oxford, which I believe Mimi remains the number one university in the world. Is that correct? I understand it is, um, according at least to one ranking. <laughs> now tell me all about this superb uh, deep technology lab that you set up. What was the idea behind it? What does it do? How does it help people around the world with uh, solving problems? The lab is a creation of actually more than me. Uh, so Mark, you are also a co-founder and um, another genius behind this exciting initiative. And we also have 12 um, and growing number of um, researchers from uh, undergraduate students to doctoral students and postdocs from a range of disciplines, uh, from computer science, law, finance, economics, mathematics, and ethics and philosophy. We came together actually about last year, this some, around this time last year, uh, because all of us uh, thought there was something more to um, legal education than just you know, going to classes and you know, memorizing everything uh, in, in legal subjects and just you know, regurgitating them in exams. There was definitely more to um, certainly the, the brilliance of the students involved in the lab than being really good, smart academics, right? So um, a lot of them already started learning how to program. Uh, these are law students. Um, and there was this um, real desire to see uh, what they, their knowledge being transferred into industry, into practice, even though you know, some of them have never been in practice. Um, some of them have had years of uh, you know, being qualified as a lawyer in the UK and elsewhere. Uh, but they just want to do something new. And so it was through many of these conversations in the dining halls of Oxford that I gathered this group of really amazing, um, uh, they, they're relatively young compared to us, Mark, but, um, you know, they are certainly um, very mature in terms of some of their ideas and, um, you know, how, um, they, how they see their their world in terms of being future legal practitioners or existing legal practitioners can be transformed by technology so um you know i personally have an interest in dispute resolution as do a number of the labs researchers but you know our lab um you know the scope is is sort of still focused on dispute resolution and the impact of new technologies on the landscape of dispute resolution but certainly we are exploring projects that are beyond this um, and legal tech uh, projects that look at um, developments in the industry as a whole. Um, so, um, so what we like to say is that we are the leading international hub of interdisciplinary and multi-stakeholder research collaboration on the study of the development and use of deep technologies in the dispute resolution landscape in the UK and internationally. My goodness, well, that's quite a tagline, isn't it? And what does it actually mean, though? Give me a practical example. What kind of things do you think technology will be able to do that will, that will help people uh, either avoid disputes or, 
or solve disputes or, you know, how can technology help? Yeah, so we've got about uh, quite a few projects, but we've kind of prioritised recently in terms of the projects that um, our labs researchers will focus on. Um, and that will give you a sense of the, um, the ideas that have been developed, um, not just in our group in terms of our lab members, but certainly these are ideas that are highly relevant to the question of how technology can help and empower um, you know, not the big commercial players, although they're obviously gained from the process, but more importantly, the sort of um, everyday kind of situations that all of us face uh, that give us, you know, um, sleepless nights, um, thing, things like tenancy, um, you know, disputes, um, you know, debt repayments, um, you know, employment disputes. I mean, these are kind of sort of civil cases that uh, affect almost everyone. And I think for us, we, it was really important to identify projects that we can work on that can really achieve this broader goal of access to justice. And so um, the first project that we have, uh, have been working on at the moment is developing a, um, at least a proof of concept, maybe a prototype down the track of an online dispute resolution uh, mechanism for small and medium-sized enterprises, especially in the you know, context of COVID-19, uh, which has created um, a range of disputes, uh, not least sort of late payments or non-payments. And so um, that is an initiative that we've been developing and Tech Nation at the moment has a call uh, for, for this particular project um, to develop a feasibility study and also a proof of concept. But I think our goal is much in a way more ambitious. Um, I think it would be really awesome to see this project kind of um, expand to consider a range of um, civil disputes that affect everyone's lives. So uh, we're very excited to work with a few startups in this space um, and also members um, you know, in the judiciary, uh, legal practice and policy. Fantastic. And now you mentioned Tech Nation there, that's the UK government's response to make the UK a leading sort of centre for technology and innovation and they have a sort of law tech initiative as we've seen in, in Kazakhstan. I think the Astana International Financial Centre's Advisory Council on Legal Technology and Law Tech, that's, that's really a world first as well. But um, So you're familiar with, with that uh, too, but tell me also about what's happening in China. Many people think China is way ahead in uh, the use of technology, particularly in dispute resolution in the courts. What's your view? Is, is, China, is China leading the way when it comes to law tech? Is it a force to be reckoned with, something we should be watching? Or does the real sort of might of law tech still sit firmly in the West? No, I, I think certainly, you know, um, the competition from Asia and IC, AFIC and Kazakhstan has uh, very much also been, you know, at the forefront. And certainly in A Central Asia, it is at, you know, at the forefront of uh, developments in deep tech in uh, the, the context of dispute resolution, but also broadly um, in, in legal and other professional services sector. In China, I think um, in a way, we, we may be comparing um, apples and oranges because in, in one sense, um, China's got the technology and I know that the UK has the technology as well, but what is different really is that it, it is really the, the, um, the regulatory and governance system, which, uh, is very top down and basically 
um, the development of new technologies and, and the widespread adoption of new technologies in China have been driven really by Beijing, um, by the Supreme People's Court, who've said, you know, this is something that will transform the courts. And we also want this to improve accountability of judges, transparency of our courts and access to justice, because if those goals are not met, you know, um, then there is obviously concern that the, the disputes will create, um, you know, social problems. We want more harmonious relationships between people in an increasingly complex society like China. So judicial reform is really what has underpinned the technological transformation in China because of the um, complex social, economic, political, cultural context in which um, Chinese courts have found themselves in. So, um, and so it's a great initiative um, in terms of this smart courts um, framework that's been rolled out by the Supreme People's Court in 2015. And they have just put in so much effort to get this to, you know, even regional parts of China. Um, so it's not just in Beijing and Shanghai. Um, you know, they, you see this technology being rolled out in courts in not just second tier cities, um, but also third tier, fourth, fourth tier cities that are less developed. Um, so you can see that this is something, I mean, I, I really hope the UK can, you know, and, and other jurisdictions can learn from, but of course it, it has Chinese characteristics, as we say. Um, it's certainly part of this broader policy framework to improve the judiciary. Um, so it's using technology not for technology's sake. I think that's really important about the Chinese case, but using technology in a very strategic way of, um, you know, again, improving transparency, improving accountability and improving access to justice. So Mimi, with your experience in China, as you say, a lot of this is, is judicial reform has led to the implementation of technology to deliver access to justice across 1.4 or more, perhaps more billion people you've experienced in in the UK and in the West and you've experienced in 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 the center in Central Asia and to some extent in in the Middle East where you've uh, where you've been involved and I want to understand what you think is the best model is it that that transformation technological transformation um, significant transformation transformation that helps the most people in the community with their legal and justice problems does that come from government does it come from private sector does it come from a synthesis of the two what's the most effective way for legal technology to help the most people you know the most people in society yeah so i definitely think that um governments have to be involved because at the core of the justice system you know it's certainly um with criminal justice, I think, you know, it, it, it still has to be the state. Um, but I think in other countries, China, I mean, the state is core to everything, right? So, uh, but even in, in a place that is very state centered, like China, we see that the development of um, ICT in Chinese courts have been, um, you know, partnerships with private providers. So, you know, Alibaba was very instrumental in setting up the internet courts in Hanzhou particularly um, a few years ago. So um, they were, you know, setting up not just the technological side, but also some of the procedural aspects of those courts. Um, you know, they have huge teams of lawyers. Uh, they, they really know their stuff. And obviously they are going to be one of the main beneficiaries of these courts, um, these internet courts, because, um, you know, they 
have to deal with these disputes from consumers and suppliers and traders. And so um, you can say it was a court made for Alibaba. So, um, so, but at the same time, the government is um, very strategic as well, because they knew that through this um, public private partnership, you may in a loose sense, um, that they are going to derive a lot of benefits. Right, because Alibaba was essentially building it virtually for free. So, um, and they would be the main beneficiary. And from that experience, the Chinese courts can actually um, be able to learn from um, this first internet court that was set up in Hangzhou and then be able to roll out its own. And then, you know, it might choose other tech providers and it, it, has, asked, it has actually gone beyond Alibaba. There are a number of tech players um, big tech players and to smaller ones who are involved in this process. So I think um, for, for, you know, I can think of in the UK, this would be the way forward um, is um, industry led and backed by the government. Um, so in China, it has to be state led and industry follows, but industry will play a big role. But, but certainly in the UK, um, I can see that um, it may make more sense for industry to lead it, given how strong um, we, in terms of the legal tech um, ecosystem that we have in, in this country. And if I can bring you back to the lab in Oxford, what does success look like then in five years? Is it that the lab's influence has spread around the world, that its initiatives are, are truly global? Is it a research house which will produce outstanding research or will it produce something that that perhaps is more more tangible uh, and, and which is implemented what's your vision for the success of the lab yeah i think obviously um you know we've only started uh, recently um and we've got a great advisory board that consists of um you know thought leaders um, and actually, they're not just thought leaders, they're actually leaders in action as well. <laughs> action leaders, I guess that could be one way of describing them. They are really um, very impressive individuals from different um, walks of the legal tech ecosystem in the UK and globally. Uh, very pleased that AIF AIFC um, uh, authorities, um, Deputy CEO Marit is on the advisory board of the lab. Um, I think for the lab, you know, our, we've been focused really on individual research so far. We've, we've identified a few projects that collectively, you know, our, um, our various disciplines um, of research can contribute to something bigger. Uh, so we, we'll start with those and see whether we can, you know, produce some outstanding research coming out of it. But also these are the sort of projects that have much more of a um, a startup kind of feel like it, we, we won't say we're an incubator right now, but I think, um, you know, I would like to see the lab in five years time being able to incubate um, some very high potential projects uh, from our research that could be of uh, practical, commercial, um, and it's always relevant to policy. So that's like a given. I think our lab really engages in um, impactful research that, that has um, implications for policy. But in terms of something that could potentially be commercialized in, in sort of a few years um, and really cultivate the talent that we have in Oxford, um, that's something that I really will uh, devote um, my uh, many efforts to. So, so let's, uh, if I can play that back, that AI 
will free up the costs and the time and the mental energy involved in legal advice and dispute resolution. But then where's the economic model for lawyers, right? I mean, the, the question has to be, if AI can review cases better than any lawyer, if AI can predict outcomes better than any lawyer, if AI judges today are delivering 41% more accurately in terms of the decision than human judges, um, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying, which is you can never do away with the personal touch. And I think there's an element of that, the empathy around it. But as a professor that, that also still teaches students, are you teaching them differently now? Do you give them different skills and different advice to the advice that you would have given them 10 years ago? To be a super coder, I think it's important to have some background knowledge in programming, like so some basic programming languages. It's not that hard. Um, and in many ways, um, being a lawyer, you know, we teach our students how to think logically. You know, there are, you know, like when you go into a contract law exam, I teach them, you know, here are the cases, here are the main principles, and here's how you apply these principles and rules. Um, I guess in, in some ways, law is, is still more flexible. It's not as rigid as code, um, some would say, but then I know computer scientists um, uh, in my lab would disagree otherwise. They, they would say, actually, it's not just like, you know, code is not just like, you know, uh, binary. Um, I mean, in, in the sort of, well, look, I actually don't really understand the really high level, you know, computer science theories they're talking about, but I, what, what I think they're trying to say is that, um, you know, the difference between law and computer science, um, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of overstated. There's actually a lot of mutual um, synergies in the way that lawyers think and computer scientists think. Um, and so it's, that's why I've been trying to encourage at least my law students to uh, at least understand um, some of the basics of um, computer science um, or computer engineering because you're absolutely right, the job market is already changing. And, you know, in the post-COVID environment, um, you know, I think it, it, it is necessary to be able to have the skills when you graduate from law school of not just having, you know, like this huge body of specialist legal, legal knowledge, um, but the skills that we've been trying to teach our students also in terms of, you know, thinking, critical thinking, um, the soft skills that they need, you know, when they deal with clients. Um, and then I think increasingly these additional skills in terms of understanding um, technology, um, tech savviness. Uh, I think this generation is already way ahead of my generation uh, when I graduated from law school in terms of tech savviness. And there is a real desire um, to um, be proficient in uh, technology. Uh, among the graduates that I see here, but maybe because I only like obviously the lab is a bit special because these are the students who really are into um, technology. But I think as a law professor, I I see it as my job when students come to me, um, you know, and they're like, oh, I don't have a training contract for another three four years. Um, you know, what should I do? Uh, I want to do a master's degree, and I'll be like, well, look, I know you might think there's a lot of maths involved, and you might not like maths, but if I was your age, I would go and do a computer science or some sort of, you know, a degree where, or not a degree, you could just do like Code Academy um, or something, you know, if you have an interest in 
how technology is going to transform your profession because I can guarantee you that you can put that on your CV when you apply for um, any law firm. I think, you know, including the big law firms, which, you know, are slower to change their business models. But nevertheless, you know, if a student can put down on their CV, they have a genuine interest in um, technology in their sector and have actually gone out to, to really try and pick up new skills, um, you know, including programming, I think that would look really impressive. Um, so that's, I think, what is needed uh, because, as you said, a lot of the stuff I used to do as a junior lawyer is now already being replaced by machine learning solutions. In the next 10 years, we can see that really accelerate. So uh, what sort of skills that we impart to our students, um, I think it, it needs to emphasize on the soft skills in terms of client skills, um, but increasingly the kind of technical skills. Um, but people will disagree with me. I know I've had this debate with, with many colleagues and they just think, why would you want to, why would they, sh why should they learn how to code? I mean, it's um, not telling them to be computer programmers, but I think it's important to be able to communicate with the people who are going to design these solutions. So, and I want to come back to that because there's this issue of smart contracts and the move towards smart contracts. But I, I just want to pick up, do you think that within the next few years, it will become a job requirement for lawyers to actually have the soft skills, the empathy and the caring? Because I've never seen that on any recruitment ad for a senior lawyer, does it say you've got to be a nice person? In fact, in many of them, it's implied that you've got to be a nasty, ruthless, horrible person. So are we going to, are we going to see a nicer quality of lawyer, Mimi? It's not, empathy is not being nice, Mark. I'm just going to push back a bit on this. I, empathy is actually being able to understand. It's about being strategic as well. It's being able to understand your client's needs. Um, I mean, I don't think any client would want a, a, a uh, you know, a, a difficult lawyer that you've just described. <laughs> so um, I think, you know, empathy is about being able to see from your client's perspective, but also from the other side, because, you know, when you make a legal argument, you, as I always tell my students in, in your essays and your tutorial papers, you know, I want to see counter arguments. I want you to be able to see, you know, from the other side, like what their arguments are, and that will only strengthen your arguments. So I see that also as part of being empathetic. So, uh, but I, empathetic is not about being nice. You know? So, um, so I, I, um, I think in terms of smart contracts, um, I would say that you know it's certainly a area which all lawyers should absolutely familiarise themselves with. Um, it's going to play a much bigger role than it is now. It's already, you know, growing in significance. Um, at least sort of smart contracts that are on private blockchain DLTs. Um, and I think in terms of, you know, uh, more creative use and deployment of smart contracts, uh, we will see that happening, um, you know, across different sectors, um, different aspects of the supply chain. Lawyers absolutely must, um, given that clients are from diverse sectors, need to know, um, you know, the use of smart contracts and not only the use of smart contracts within the legal sector, you know, in terms of how we um, can transfer like natural language to um, uh, like legal language into code, but actually the knowledge of how smart contracts 
operate in the context of distributed ledgers in the context of their clients industry and it all goes back to empathy you see understanding the client means understanding the technologies that they're using so if i've heard you correctly you're still teaching your students to be hard-nosed ruthless tough-minded lawyers but at the same time you're saying that they should better understand their opponent in order to more effectively annihilate them that's what's coming across Mimi, uh, and it's so disappointing that we didn't take this opportunity to humanise the law. But I suppose that's right, because if we do move into a realm where we don't need humans to implement contracts, because the contracts are clever enough to work it out for themselves, it does, it does sort of get us to a, a dystopian world when it comes to lawyers, right? So do you see that um, whilst you know lawyers with certain skills will continue to be important, that uh, the empathy that you call it, um, what if we carry on as we are? Do you see that also the number of lawyers that we need around the world, and to some extent the number of judges and magistrates and all of those within the system, do you see that declining as technology improves? The business models will change, but I don't see the business models necessarily involve a reduction in headcount. And I say this because essentially the role of a junior lawyer will change. And this is a challenge for us as educators um, at law school and particularly at a place as traditional as Oxford, where we still teach Roman law. Um, and that's gonna be a challenge. But I don't think that, um, I mean, in, in many respects, you know, we may, we may see changes in terms of wages and working conditions. So I'm not going to say, look, lawyers are going to still be paid a lot like what they are sometimes, like, you know, before financial crisis in New York, places like those. Um, I think we must accept that reality that our sector in terms of the existing conditions uh, will change. Um, but I, I don't think that the numbers will decrease because we will take on new roles. Um, junior lawyers will do something else, um, but they will also have the skills to do something else. Um, and, you know, whether that's kind of working with development teams to build new legal tech products, um, because, you know, software developers, in, at the end of the day, you know, um, they're software developers. Some have some legal background, but, you know, they, I think lawyers and, um, and, and developers, but also kind of wider groups of stakeholders, like you said, judges, policymakers, um, really need to sit on the same table and, um, you know, really kind of figure out uh, the sort of technical regulatory policy framework that will be able to ensure that no jobs are really cut uh, in this process. Well, it's interesting though, because if, uh, if the traditional law firm model depends on a pyramid structure with a large number of lawyers coming in at a junior level and accruing, charging, you know, as much as they can to, to, to benefit, you know, to do work for their clients. If the law firm model depends on that pyramid, then if technology takes away the need for that work at the bottom of the pyramid, whether it's document review or low-level drafting or disclosure exercises or data rooms, if that all goes, then in, in principle at least, 
those jobs go. And if those jobs go, it means that the large number of lawyers that countries are pumping out of university and law school will have fewer jobs as lawyers that they can take. Now, it doesn't stop them going and doing other things. Like it didn't stop someone who used to make horseshoes from going on to be a car mechanic, right? But the actual number of jobs, one would think, has to change. And if it doesn't change, then as you say, then the people at the top of the pyramid will be earning significantly less than they earn today, right? So what's the, this is the, suppose, the million dollar question. What do you see as the effective model for running a law firm in the future? I think um, already the business model for a lot of law firms have changed. Um, you know, we've already seen the last 10 to 15 years in the UK, the emergence and rise of alternative legal providers. Um, and that market is only set to grow with, I think, the legal tech kind of um, developments that we're seeing. Um, you know, I, I mean, my, myself, you know, I, I'm, you know, I, I, I've sort of left corporate law um, and I'm an individual consultant, right? So I kind of take up work as I want and only the work that I interests me. So this model of like a platform, um, a platform type of like the Uber for lawyers, right? Is something that has been embraced and particularly perhaps by lawyers who are not just wanting to be, you know, in that billable hour kind of mentality, who don't want to be partners at big law firms. I suddenly, you know, ruled that out very early on in my career. Um, and, but still love the law, but still love to do other things with their lives. Um, and so I think that's already happening. The changes to the traditional legal, um, the law firm model that you're talking about. Um, and especially as technology uh, makes this so much easier, um, and in a post-COVID world where we don't even have to rock up to work, right, in terms of physical space. Um, and I think a lot of law firms are now really thinking, okay, actually, we can first of all save the commute time. Um, so that could be going to, you know, our um, fee earners, like, hours. And secondly, you know, this office space, actually, something more important. The office space, you know, in these big, these big law firms are in the most expensive parts of the, the city. So, um, so I think law firms are moving towards um, remote working anyway. And so in that sense, you know, there is no need, for example, FaceTime, which I had a lot when I was a junior lawyer. Um, I finished my work, but there was always like, I couldn't leave the office till like after 10 um, because there was always like this expectation. So, um, so I'm just kind of highlighting already the changes that we're seeing even without kind of, you know, AI or, or deep technologies, you know, transforming, disrupting the sector. So um, I think it's changing and, and clients are demanding. Very importantly, the changes have been driven by the client. They don't want to see, you know, them getting a huge bill um, that, you know, is outside their expectations, right? So um, with that sort of client-driven um, uh, change to, to the business model, um, I think what we will see is a hybrid of different business models and may the best model in terms of, you know, it's, it's a Darwinistic kind of um, competition, you know, it's um, may the best model win. So, and I don't think it's going to be the traditional billable hours of the magic circle firms. Absolutely wonderful. Well, uh, we've covered botany, we've covered philosophy, we've covered Roman law, we've predicted the future of law, we've predicted the future of justice, we've predicted the role of AI, 
we've discussed business, we've discussed research. It's been a real tour de force. So may I thank you very much indeed for a fascinating conversation. It's been a real pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you too. And let's carry this on. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. This podcast is being produced by the Astana International Financial Centre and moderated by the chairman of the AIFC Law Tech Advisory Council, Mark Beer. Thank you very much for listening. If you would like to hear more information on the Astana International Financial Centre's Law Tech Advisory Council, please follow us on LinkedIn.